The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. Good, e- good evening, everyone. How is the sound? Is it too loud or too soft? Is, is it okay? It should be a little bit little bit louder, just a tiny bit louder. That's kind of what I was thinking, too. But, uh, so, let's see. How, how, did you, did it, is it louder? <laughs> then, but, uh, okay, maybe, yeah, here we go. Thank you. Thank you, Sveta. Nice to see you all. It's hard to believe, right, that I just realized that autumn is this week, right? The equinox, or it's like, wow, not the equinox, the solstice. One of those things, one of those uh, sun and earth things. (laughs) So tonight I'd like to start with a poem, a short poem. It's by Rosemary Traumer. It's called Mus Musculus. And uh, this is the Latin name for a mouse. Those of you who don't know Rosemary Traumer, she's like one of my favorite artists, uh, poem poets. And I'll say that uh, often her poems have a little bit of whimsy to them. And I like this. And they're not complicated. They're kind of straightforward. And you'll see that's the flavor of this poem, too. But I like what she's pointing to here. So the poem goes like this. Today, fear is a mouse that scuttles between thoughts and feeds on whatever it finds, nibbles on my certainties, gnaws the coating off my circuitries, and pulls the stuffing out of each moment. Those are its droppings in the hallways of in hallways of my mind. I thought it was worse when fear was a tiger, a badger, a wolverine, but the mouse of fear finds its way into everything, makes nests inside my minutes, discovers passages in my inner walls, then scratches against them at night. It never goes near the traps I've set, no, it scampers around them, its soft feet pattering, its small its small dark eyes noting everywhere I go. So this idea of this little mouse that's going wherever she goes. Sometimes fear can feel like this. It has its... uh, Excuse me here for a moment. Sometimes fear can feel like this, that it's... um, following us around, getting into the little nooks and crannies of our days. I don't know what's happening with my voice. It's, and I'm not sick. This is just something that happens with my allergies sometimes. Earlier today, it was fine. So fear often has a large role in our lives, bigger than we realize especially if we kind of like uh, broaden this whole idea of fear to include things like apprehension, 
or anxiety or dread or worry, if we kind of like expand the meaning to include these types of things, we discover that actually maybe this little mouse is all over in our lives, is showing up in so many different ways, scampering around, scratching at night. In the way in the poet she talks about, fear seemed easier when it was a tiger or a wolverine. Sometimes it seems like it's easier when it's really big and we can point to it and it's right here. And it's obvious when it's there and it's obvious when it isn't there. But this idea of a mouse, of a way that, you know, often when there's mice, we don't see them. We just feel the effects of them. So fear turns out to have actually a big uh, role in our lives. And some people might even say, like if we even wanted to expand it even bigger and say that maybe it's, we would say fear is at the root to underlying all conflicts. Or maybe even some of uh, our sorrow. There's this role that fear has or this way in which it's blocking us from intimacy or you know, getting close to others and instead uh, creating this sense of disconnection. I don't know if that's true, if all of conflict has fear underneath it or if all sorrow has fear underneath it or if all hesitation about intimacy has fear underneath it. But I think it's worthwhile examining, questioning for ourselves. Yeah, what role does fear have in our lives? What are the different ways it shows up? How would our lives be different if there wasn't this fear, dread, apprehension, worry, anxiety? So I'm talking about some of these things that are in our life, but also fear can show up in a really subtle way in our practice. That is, when we're practicing, have a meditation practice, whatever meditation practice you do, there might be a way in which you come up to the edge of what's familiar and start to touch into something different, something unfamiliar. I know that when a One time I was teaching an introduction to meditation class and sometimes there would be people that really didn't have any experience at all with meditation. And this one person on the first day, maybe it was the second day, I don't remember, that uh, this person was like quite alarmed like after I had done a little guided meditation. And as she was sharing, she's like, this feels odd. This is uncomfortable. I feel like it's a complete out-of-body experience. And I was talking with her and asking her to share what it was, the experience was. And it turned out it was really calmness. But she was so used to having this kind of this certain amount of anxiety inside that this calmness felt like that she must not be present if there wasn't this certain amount of calmness. But it had some fear for her. I know for myself that um, I've had fear, with, on, especially on some of these long retreats when the mind gets really settled. You know, months of uh, on-retreat practice in silence. And the mind gets into places it hasn't been before. Like, oh, wow, oh, what was that? 
There's always, for me, I don't know if it's this case for everybody, the initial point is like, whoa, what was that? And then this, uh, I feel like the mind is like, is this familiar? Is it not familiar? And if it's not familiar, there's a little bit of, you know, this hesitation, this, uh, not this willingness to like, just go for it. Like whatever is new, just trusting it and going right into it. And on one of these uh, really long retreats that I sat, Joseph Goldstein was one of the teachers. And I remember him giving a Dharma talk where he shared that one of his uh, biggest difficulties in practice and in life was fear. And I remember sitting there being like so surprised. Those of you who don't know Joseph Goldstein, he's uh, probably one of the most senior, if not the most senior person in this tradition. He helped bring it from India and Burma to the West. So, you know, he's uh, been around for a long time, decades and decades. But not only that, he's like a really uh, tall person. You know, then he kind of walks and moves a little authoritatively. So to hear that even he had a lot of fear, I thought, wow. And at the time I thought like, I don't have any fear. Why does he have fear? I had no idea how much fear I actually had. So I don't know now what I'm, I think about Joseph often when I see fear. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. At least I'm in good company here. But so maybe it's uh, the fear of the unknown, but maybe it's also the fear when we are in our meditation practice. Look at this fear that. Maybe it's things like, oh, maybe this uncomfortable sensation in my knee or my back is never going to end. You know, we kind of like project into the future. Or or maybe we have this uh, fear that I'll never get settled or this mind will never settle down and I will never be able to feel a certain amount of ease or calm. Like the mind likes to do this, likes to come up with these different scenarios. So maybe one of the first ways of the stage of practicing with fear is even to acknowledge its presence. This won't be sufficient to make fear go away, just to have this intellectual understanding, but it's where we start. Maybe it's not... It doesn't have to be the very beginning, but it definitely has a role. And it's tempting to think like, okay, if I just understand it better, if I figure it out, it'll go away. If I get underneath it, what was it from my childhood or my, the way that I was raised or something that happened earlier in my life that's causing this fear. And certainly that can have a role and it can be supportive. But... There's often, like, when the fear is being experienced right there, it's not, we don't have the opportunity, we don't have the wherewithal, we don't have the time to do that type of investigation or inquiry. But instead, we can just notice that uh, there's fear shows up in all kinds of ways. Some of it's subtle. For example, it might be some fear that's really driving our ambition, our motivation, what's propelling us. Maybe there's some fear underneath that. 
Or maybe there's some fear that's underneath our anger. That whether we're angry with ourselves, angry with other people, or just however it shows up, maybe there's some fear underneath that. Or maybe there's some fear underneath our sadness. So there's this way that fear can show up or support um, all kinds of these um, uncomfortable emotions and aspects of our lives. And uh, Ezra Beda, who's a Zen teacher, he says, well, actually, we could just boil it all down to just three fears. Again, I don't know if this is true, but uh, it's been interesting for me to think about this. So he says that there's only three fears, and that these like underlie all of our uncomfortable experiences. Number one is the fear of losing safety and control. Yeah, we don't like to lose control. How much of our life is trying to control? Control ourselves, control other people, control anything we can. Yeah, I noticed that uh, with my mindfulness, with my meditation practice, when I first started being mindful, I had no idea how much planning I was doing. I didn't realize that I would just spend all my time just planning, planning, planning. And it wasn't until I actually noticed, oh, there's fear underneath this planning. Like I'm trying to be prepared so that no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. So we have all these contingency plans that are coming up and, well, if this happens, then I got to have this and that. And, you know, so then I would like have a big backpack that I had to carry with me everywhere, (laughs) you know, just in case, you know, all these things, you know, this fear of boredom or, you know, whatever it might be. So this fear of losing safety and control. I have a nice first aid kit in my car, which is probably a good thing to do, I want to say. But, you know, maybe there's a little this fear of uh, being unsafe. Or I like to think it's cause, so I can help somebody if they need it. If I happen to come across an accident or something, I'm the first one there. I, I don't want to be feel helpless. So a second fear that Ezra Beda says is a fear of aloneness and disconnection. And we could say, well, maybe some of our, this um, impacts our relationships with people, maybe some of our relationships with ourselves, or also our relationship with death, this fear of aloneness of death. Maybe we don't want other people to die. We don't want to die. And then the third fear is this fear of unworthiness. Not being good enough, somehow being inadequate or insufficient. And the things that we'll do to maybe bolster uh, the view that others have of us, you know, wanting to look good in such a way. Maybe there's this fear of being feeling like we're unworthy or seeming like that we're unworthy to others. So there's sometimes people like to lump things together and sometimes people like to split them apart. Things, it's like anything. And I'm one of those people who likes to just lump things into categories. So I kind of like this idea that there's just these three fears. Because it uh, also... uh, Kind of, I find it uh, interesting to think, well, are there some fears that don't fall into those three 
back buckets. And of course, we can get into, well, it depends how you define safety and control and, you know, all these kinds of things. But part of why it's helpful is because it gives us something maybe to point to. Instead of fear just being this big black box, something that's mightily uncomfortable and that we would do almost anything to not have that experience, Maybe having a few little labels or flavors of it makes it become maybe a little bit less of a black box. Because there's a way in which we often, of course we don't like fear and we often are trying to like flee from fear or avoid it. And maybe I should say also that... um, you know, there's lumping together, but maybe I'll also just tease apart. I mean, a little bit this uh, the difference between fear and anxiety. For the most part, I'm kind of like putting them together, <clears throat> but we might understand that a difference is is that fear is more about uh, something that's unknown, and it has it's about a specific object or a specific experience. Most, it's either something that's imminent or maybe it's something that's far in advance. Whereas anxiety has more of this unfocused fear. And maybe it's this excessive fear if that's a little bit higher than what necessarily the object, if we knew what it was, would be related to, would be appropriate for that. And then maybe as an aside, I've just noticed... In my mind and some other teachers who have noticed this also that uh, maybe it's after the pandemic but how many people are talking about their anxiety how many people are just feeling uncomfortable I see this in my role as uh, like a teacher on retreats or in other settings or uh, practice discussions and people are sharing with me how their practice is going and this word uh, anxiety comes up a lot So just this recognition that I think this is maybe a time, a season, this time of post-pandemic and everything else that's happening in the world in which it's not so uncommon. But as I was saying, fear involves this, like these unpleasant sensations or it's an unpleasant experience. And we might be able to like tease those apart between the physical sensations, which it's a heart pounding or maybe there's like butterflies in the stomach and then there's those reactions to those sensations which might also be some clenching or some tightening or bracing or something like this so those are like what's happening in the body but also what's happening in the mind is usually there's a constriction of the awareness like just focused on one thing and not in a way that's pleasant sometimes when we're focused a sense of concentration can bring with it some calm and ease but this is a constriction where the awareness shrinks down in a way that is unpleasant we're feeling stuck maybe or there isn't a sense of ease or relaxation or malleability instead this really shrinking And again, part of this teasing apart in this way is also so that we can work with it, 
can notice, okay, there's the, what's happening in the body and there's what's happening in the mind. And those are two different ways in which we can practice with fear, that we can work with it. And so, because if we have, if we don't notice that we have fear, and then there's just the aversion to fear, which of course I think is a natural response. I think it's part of our biology. Fear wouldn't be effective as a way to protect us, which I'm sure evolutionarily is why we have fear, if it weren't uncomfortable. So it's inherently uncomfortable. But part of this, what uh, perpetuates fear is uh, this idea of fleeing or trying to run away from it. If it's happening right then, if we're feeling fear. But part of what happens when we're trying to run away from the fear is we run away in our minds, into our minds. But when there's fear, the mind is kind of constricted and there might be this whirlwind of stories or maybe it's not even clear, i got to get out of here, what is this happening? Or there can be this disorganization in our thoughts or a sense of a franticness to them. So it's part of the way, reason why aversion, which often turns to this idea of fleeing, just perpetuates, perpetuates the fear is because we're just uh, feeding maybe this uh, the thought, uh, this rumination or this uh, way in which we're kind of like stuck in a certain way of thinking. So what are some ways to practice with fear? There's a number of different ways. And I'd like to say that also we have to recognize that of course there's different intensities of fear. So different practices might be appropriate with different intensities. Things that are just mildly fearful. For me, there's a thing about spider webs that I don't like. I just, I mean, let alone spiders, right? But uh, spider webs. I'm getting much better, much better. In fact, the other day I just was cleaning up some spider webs and I felt rather proud of myself. But, you know, those aren't really terrible ones, you know, fears. I can work with those in a certain way. But, uh, you know, some of these existential fears. Fears of being alone. Fears of being out of control. Fear of death. You know, they they might need a little bit more uh, care with how we practice with them. But here's one way to practice both with the minor ones. I use the word minor, less intense. And it might be available for some of the more intense ones too. And that is to bring attention to the body. But the body in a particular way, I would say more like the whole body. So not like a focused in, but like the whole body, the whole bodily experience. So one way to do this is just to pay attention to posture. And just to notice, you know, is there an alertness? Is there slouching? Is the hip out with your hand on your hip or you're tapping your foot? Or I don't know, are you uh, with the shoulders down and like this? Just to notice, or if you're walking, to feel the, maybe the pressure underneath the feet. 
because there's this way in which a more generalized mindfulness of the body helps to get away from this constriction that's happening with the awareness. Instead, this uh, kind of like opening up to be with the entire bodily experience. And there's a simile that the Buddha gives that uh, we could say is uh, definitely an example of being mindfulness of the body with fear. And this is a simile of a person who has a bowl of boiling oil on their head and they're walking towards the stage where a performance is going on, a dancing performance. In my mind, that means there's music. And in my mind, that means other people might be dancing in the audience. And then just to make it even more stressful, that uh, there's somebody walking behind the person that has oil on their head with a knife, saying that they're going to chop off your head if you drop any of the oil so the oil will burn you, then whoosh, <laughs> off with the head. Fear, right? There's a way in which all this fear. And so walking that way, you really have to pay attention to the posture, but you also have to be paying attention to what's going around you. It's like, is any of these dancing people around you going to hit you or run into you or something? So maybe this isn't a great simile, because if I were to imagine that, I think I would be really tense. But the point is to like you just to not to be aware of your uh, surroundings as well as your posture, and to s- still be able to move. So this is kind of like a simile that's giving of this mindfulness of the body in this way of way to work with fear. There's also a way in which uh, mindfulness of the body can be um, have this sense of openness that sometimes uh, teachers will talk about this and I've practiced this way sometimes and it's really a lovely way to practice is to like maybe expand the idea of the body to you know, like I don't know maybe like 6 to 12 inches from the body and this can be really pleasant actually so It's uh, not the usual mindfulness practice, but just to still be aware of what's happening, but with the body just a little bit expanded. Turns out that the mind likes to be big and open. And so doing this with with the body just encourages the mind to be a little bit more open. And then it naturally will want to kind of collapse down and focus on one thing in particular because that's a little bit easier. But there's a way which, and just to be a little bit mindful of the whole body, including just a few inches off of the body. And I know that sounds a little bit odd, and but it's worth just playing around with if you'd like to explore something like this. So... There's a way in which we also that being mindful of one's posture or like the whole uh, bodily experience also can be a way that we can like maybe like relax into this sense of being embodied. 
Because so often the fear is we're lost in our mind about what might happen. Not all the time. Sometimes there's fear or, you know, imminent danger. But for most of us, probably the things that we're afraid of or have fear about are things that are going to happen in the future. So there's a way in just to feel embodied, like I'm here now. I'm right here. And to like feel the experience of breathing and to just feel the sense of aliveness or presence that's inhabiting the body. There's a way that that can be comforting and grounding and settling. So mindfulness of the body is one way to practice with fear. And I'm pointing to this mindfulness that's a little bit more um, of the whole body, more generalized, as opposed to a really focused way. So then a second thing that we can do with uh, with fear, of course, is loving-kindness practice. There's a way that, you know, love, I'll just say generally love, warm-heartedness, and fear definitely have a relationship with one another. Because um, there's this book, right, it was written decades ago, that now the author slips my mind. But this idea is, uh, the, uh, the title of the book is Love is Letting Go of Fear. So there's this way in which if we can cultivate some open-heartedness, some warm-heartedness, then there isn't fear there, or the fear greatly lessens. And so there's a few ways to do this. And one, I will say, one is just to have that be a regular practice not waiting until fear arises. And there's a you know, loving-kindness practice. I'm not going to go into the details of that. For those of you who are interested, I taught for a number of years, and it's, uh, now Liz Powell teaches that with Nikki Mergafori, but five days a week, there's a loving-kindness practice on, uh, on Zoom. And if you go to the IMC calendar, you'll see. So there's hundreds and hundreds of recordings and still going on uh, most days. But there's this way in which, uh, with loving-kindness practice, that we can just bring to mind the absolute easiest, absolute easiest way to bring some openness or care to the heart. For some, this might be internet things that we saw, these little kittens or puppies or babies. There's a reason, right, why there's so many kitten videos. It's because uh, people like them and puppies, and it's perfectly fine to use something like this for practice, to like feel into the open-heartedness and the warmth and the delight and connect with that sensation, that experience. And then allow that experience to get as big as it would like. And there's different ways to connect to it and there's different ways that to, to allow maybe that experience to grow of this care or delight or love or warmth or respect or however you might uh, experience it. And I'll just say briefly, one way is just to be repeating phrases. 
for example, may you be safe, or may you be happy, or may you be healthy, like sending some good wishes to this lovable being. And it can be that simple. It doesn't need to be lots of different categories or different phrases or something like this. There's a way in which the mind and the heart, when they're experiencing some openness and warmth, the fear just naturally dissipates. So even if we're having a fear of an individual, let's say, I wouldn't recommend that we do loving kindness for that individual. That's a tall order. And then we're just setting ourselves up for maybe feeling, feeling like, oh, I can't do this. And then they even maybe seem to be scarier. Instead, just do some uh, loving kindness where it's easy. And then so related to that is something that we can do when we're experiencing fear is that we can just have this inquiry into about what's happening in the mind. I talked about the body, I talked about the heart, and now maybe we could say about the mind. As I said, often fear has this constriction, like there's this uh, shrinking of the awareness. But we could also, if we remember, if we can remember, we can just have this gentle inquiry Is there any wisdom here? I mean, maybe the fear is like really wise. And can we appreciate the wisdom? Can we say, is there any self-respect here? And can we appreciate that also? Okay, this fear is part of us maybe like setting boundaries and way that we're taking care of ourselves. And can we tune into that? Is there just care in general, care for ourselves, care for somebody else, or care for something that's really important to us? And tune into that. Because that's a way this uh, care or self-respect or wisdom are also ways in which we can broaden the mind. I'm pointing to all these different ways in which we can get out of this collapsed feeling that often happens with uh, fear. Because when we're practicing with fear, we don't want to collapse and surrender into it. Nor do we want to repress it and pretend that it's not there. But is there a way that we can work with it, acknowledge it, but not be overwhelmed? So mindfulness of the body, and just kind of like maybe a general way. Loving kindness practice, either that one has done regularly as part of their meditation practice, but maybe even then when there is fear. <laughs> uh, recently I was uh, on a walk in uh, this place where I know that there's some dogs that they're behind a fence, but I, I can see them and they can see me and they they love to bark and like run and run and run. And I, I have a little uh, a fear of dogs. Here's one of my, having been bitten a number of times, I have this... Uh, fear of them and I was trying to uh, like look at them and like may you be happy may you be healthy that, that uh, didn't work very well <laughs> yeah and somebody recommended that uh, I then was on a walk with somebody else in this same place and they said what if you don't even look at the dogs that are 
barking and running and stuff like this. Just like ignore them, like look the other way. And it turned out that was very helpful. So I think dogs, maybe if you're looking at them, they're interacting with you more. But I don't know the. I learned more about the psychology of dogs then. But so, is there a way in which we can open our hearts, our minds, and maybe have a little bit more ease in the body when there is fear, as a way to practice with it? And then we might discover that if we have um, experienced some fear and we have worked with it, maybe this is a minor one, spider webs, dogs that are barking but behind a fence. Is there a way that then we can be a little bit more confident? Because it turns out that really a tremendous way to work with fear is to trust that you can do it. You know, trust that, okay, this is fearful, it's mightily uncomfortable, but that's okay too. And so part of the way that we can trust ourselves or trust that being uncomfortable with fear is is going to be okay is just to have experiences with some of the more minor fears in our lives. Fear of... What is the person, the check, the grocery store clerk going to say or f- think when they see all the things that are in the shopping cart? <laughs> They're going to think like they might have some uh, comments about, wow, why is she buying so much of that? Or something like this. I don't know. Just these minor fears, whatever they might be. So fear, it turns out, has a big role in our lives. It might be really subtle, might be underlined, some really un- really otherwise unrecognized, uncomfortable experiences. It might be really obvious, things that we have fear of, but it's really worthwhile spending some time acknowledging for ourselves, just even acknowledging the role of fear, acknowledge that we don't have to be completely free of fear. It's just part of the human experience. Of course it is. Like, how could it be otherwise? Of course there's fear. And then, is there a way that we can practice with it? I I was talking about kind of like how the mind gets small, but it turns out our lives get small when we have a lot of fear. Because we're trying to avoid all these things that cause a little bit of fear. and, And then trying to avoid that it turns out to be so many things because you're avoiding this. Well, now you have to avoid that because it might lead to this, which might lead to that. And our lives just start to shrink. So it's a way in which to make not only our minds and hearts bigger, but our lives bigger. What if we're willing to take some risks, take some chances, do something new, go somewhere new that we haven't before? Enriches our lives. Brings some... uh, some beauty, some depth, some richness to this experience, this human experience. So fear and how to practice with it. So I think I'll end there and uh, open it up and see if there are any some questions or comments about what I've said here.
Thank you. Um, thank you. It was a good topic, just what I needed to hear. So um, my question is, what if you're dealing with crippling fears? And I have tried to pay attention to the body. It just doesn't work. My mind's run away. The fear takes over. And so what do you do then? And I like what you said about trusting oneself. But if the mind's already gone, how do you bring the trust back? And then what does it mean for the stimulus? I'm sorry, what was that lesson? What for the stimulus, for, for what has caused the fear. Yeah. Um, because somewhere you have to do a little bit of problem solving to deal with that fear. Um, so it all becomes this complex mess. I'd <laughs> love to hear what you have to say about that. Thank you. Yeah. No, can you keep the microphone? Because I have a question. Can you say a little bit more? What happens when you uh, bring awareness to the body? What happens? I can't. You can't? No, it doesn't work. Um, the heart's pounding, and you know, every, every attendant feeling's there, but that idea of stepping back and observing what's happening doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. It happens when I'm not that afraid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when I really need it, the tools fail me. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And is this something that's like debilitating for your life or that happens a lot or is it just like uh, occasionally? It's yeah, incidental, like some, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I th thank you for asking this. This is a really good question. I would say for fears like this, sometimes mindfulness is not the right way because exactly as you said, it's not going to work, right? We just, there's certain types of fear where it just uh, leaves us, our wisdom leaves us. And for something like that, there might be, uh, it might be appropriate for, um, to work with different modalities other than meditation or mindfulness. Something like um, limited exposure therapy or something like this. You know, I, I'm not an expert in this, but uh, I, I know about this. Or there's number, different modalities. So I'll just say this. I just kind of want to normalize your experience. And it can be frustrating when you hear somebody like me say, like, oh, just be mindful of it. And you know, you're like, no, that doesn't work. I would say for those. But it turns out to be really helpful to like uh, make a real effort to work with the minor fears, like to intentionally work with minor fears. This does have an impact. So I will say that. So I offered, you know, spiders and spider webs or dogs or something like this. So maybe there's something that isn't uh, crippling that you can practice with. And so that's one thing is maybe to like be intentional Another thing is actually to just have a loving-kindness practice, to have this just be a regular part of your life or in your meditation practice, not so that it absolutely is going to make the fear go away, but there's something about a loving-kindness practice that um, makes everything easier. <laughs> there's a, it maybe brings a little bit more of the confidence or a little bit more of the um, decreases the intensity of the fear or something like this. So, is that helpful? Kind of like those. Two? Yeah, thank you. I I tried loving kindness for a long time, and it worked 
worked. Maybe it worked, I can't tell. <laughs> but after a while it didn't work anymore. Um, I think, I remember talking to somebody, I can't remember who I spoke to, she's a part of the IMS uh, community, and she had said that if all that you can do is send loving kindness to yourself for months at end, every time you sit, then that's enough. And so it it changes. After a while, it's like, oh, I don't actually need it. <laughs> maybe I'll send it to somebody else. And then maybe that doesn't work. So, yeah, I don't know if I just need to, like, stick to things and keep trying. And, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, right. I, I, loving kindness practice, I, I think I gave a talk on this not too long ago. Uh, I'm with you. It's not always easy. And it's sometimes fun, and it feels like a drag. Sometimes like, what, really? I'm supposed to be doing this? But if there's a way you can find it in which it feels, uh, and like I said, where it's really easy, then there's a way that it can be a little bit uplifting, and it creates the conditions in which things can get metabolized or processed in a different way. And we don't understand or necessarily know what's happening, but there is a way that it can really be supportive. So just an encouragement, I guess. Okay, thank you. I'll try it again. Thank you. Okay, so here we are at the top of the hour. So thank you all for your kind attention. And if you'd like, I'll stay up here if you have some questions. So thank you. And I wish you a wonderful uh, rest of the evening. Thank you. <laughs>